0: Hello and welcome back to the Cambridge Assessment Podcast. I'm Alana Walden and I'm here to introduce the next in our series of podcasts on the different aspects and forms of assessment from our colleagues in the Cambridge Assessment Network. In this episode, we're joined by David Russell from the Education Training Foundation to discuss supporting teachers and leaders across the further education and training sector. We look at successful CPD and how it has adapted in the light of past year's events and how CPD can support innovations within the sector.
1: Welcome, David, and thank you so much for joining us today. Please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do, the Education Training Foundation and a bit about your professional development offer.
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, So I'm David Russell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Education and Training Foundation. And we are the professional development body for further education in England. Uh, So we do all the um, professional development for teachers and trainers, we do leadership development and governance development uh, for anything in the post 16 education world outside of university in England. Uh, In terms of our professional development offer, it's uh, very wide ranging. So we have some big themes that we've we've run since we started uh, seven years ago. A lot of work on improving English and maths teaching. Uh, We have a suite of leadership development programmes. So for college principals, uh, for those who are aspiring to become principals and CEOs, but also for um, chief finance officers, uh, for chairs, uh, for governors and so on. Uh, And then we have um, a big uh, development programme for teachers who are going to teach the new T levels. So um, biggest vocational education reform in England for some time. Uh, And uh, we are preparing the the teachers to teach T levels very effectively. And then a wide range of um, other work. So we do um, safeguarding and um, prevent training, for example. Uh, We work with prison educators. Uh, We do a lot of work um, helping staff who teach learners with special educational needs and disabilities uh, and a lot of practitioner research as well, which we're very passionate about.
1: So your organisation supports teachers and leaders across the sector to achieve their professional development goals. What do you believe makes for successful CPD?
2: Well, uh, that's a great question. And uh, there is a a good body of research now uh, in what makes effective CPD. I wouldn't say it's uh, over-researched by any means. Uh, I'd say it's still a bit under-researched. And in particular, I'd say it's a bit under-researched in in further education. But the evidence base is is good enough. And we've used that to help us uh, draw out Uh, 12 principles of effective CPD in further education and we've divided these into design principles and delivery principles. So it's probably worth just uh, going through that uh, because they're all important and how they work together is very important. So I won't go into great detail, but just to give you a a sense of what the key elements are. Effective CPD, um, first of all, it needs to set clear expectations and uh, that might sound obvious but it's so important that often the the objective of professional development is not always clear or it's not clear to those who, who are taking part in it and thinking from the outset about exactly what it's trying to achieve uh, very very important and um, secondly it needs to be sound in its evidence base it needs to be informed by effective practice and research i'm sad to say there's still a lot of cpd out there which is not based on evidence uh, and as a result, uh, you're quite lucky if it's effective. So that's number two. Um, thirdly, it needs to use appropriate facilities and materials that engage and motivate practitioners. So you can have a very clear CPD that's very evidence informed. Um, but if it's not uh, talking to the particular needs and motivations of the professionals who are engaging in it, um, it's not going to be ultimately effective in achieving a change in their long term practice. And that's again, it may sound obvious, but again, an awful lot of CPD in our sector is um, not designed with the practitioner in mind. So, for example, it might be whole college uh, CPD designed in order to meet a, a corporate need, uh, maybe a compliance need or a Um, some other um, purpose that's been identified by senior management uh, and that's not the most effective way uh, to to deliver professional development and that links to the fourth one which is it needs to be focused on learner outcomes Um, this is one of the things evidence is most clear on uh, that effective CPD has a clear focus on learner outcomes Uh, and that means whatever the professional development is about um, having a line of sight through from the the CPD through to the changes in the teacher's practice through to the learner outcomes is absolutely uh, critical. Uh, Fifth, it needs to be sustained over time. So, uh, again, an awful lot of CPD is done as um, one-off intervention or sometimes called sheep dip. Uh, and there's really good evidence that um, more effective CPD is sustained over time and so we need to build in opportunities for further or repeat learning uh, including uh, signposting to further CPD opportunities to make sure you embed and, and build on the initial uh, the initial intervention and that sustain, sustained over time is, is, is very key. And then this, the, the sixth and, and last design principle is that you need to secure management buy-in. So, evidence tells us that the most effective CPD has the ongoing support of host organizations. Again, uh, if you think about practical examples, it's very common uh, that a a teacher will be taken out of uh, his or her uh, practice environment, will engage in some CPD, which may in, in all other respects be absolutely fantastic. But then if the teacher returns to the host organisation and the aims of that professional development are not understood and not supported, then there won't be supported opportunities to put into practice the learning that has happened uh, on that professional development. And so it will will very soon uh, wane over time uh, and it won't become a sustained change in the practice of the teacher. Uh, and and that's what CPD is all about. So those, those are the six design principles. And then uh, briefly, I'll just come on and, and talk about delivery principles. So this is more for people who are actually delivering CPD themselves. Um, but just to run through those. So model effective teaching practice. In other words, the medium is part of the message. Um, it, there's no good having CPD, which is very well evidence informed and, and, lo- and has lots of great content if those who themselves are delivering uh, the CPD are not using uh, principles of of effective instruction and uh, effective um, uh, teaching and learning. It needs to encourage, uh, next point, it needs to encourage collaboration and sustainable peer relationships. And this is one of the, the features of professional development as opposed to teaching and learning per se. So lots of the aspects of professional development are just the same as the aspects of teaching and learning but this is one that really pulls out the the professional nature. Um, So it's important in delivering it to ensure that participants can engage, share and collaborate as part of training and development and also identify follow-on opportunities for working in collaborative networks Uh, is very key. You know, the expertise in the room does not all come uh, from the trainer. Of course, uh, professionals bring their expertise into the room and that must be leveraged, that must be used for mutual benefit uh, if it's going to be uh, the most effective that it can be. Next, um, it's important to refer it to a wider Uh, context. So in our context, in FE in England, that context is the professional standards. So you're referring to the ETF's professional standards, mapping the CPD against those professional standards uh, is very, very important. Uh, Next, it needs to enhance and extend specialist knowledge. So again, there's a lot of evidence, um, fairly recent evidence, that shows that um, one of the most uh, common characteristics of effective CPD is that it's subject specific as opposed to generic. Um, So helping practitioners to consider how they will apply the learning to the teaching teaching and sequencing of knowledge and skills in their specialism uh, really helps to drive uh, effective changes in long-term practice uh, from CPD. Second last, it needs to have opportunities for deliberate practice. So um, to practice new skills and techniques learnt, this is really important. Uh, teaching is, 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 a, is a practice, it's a practical science, a practical art and practical craft. And when you learn new things, you have to be able to you have to practice them uh, to get better at them. Uh, you can do that when you go back to the classroom or the workplace or whatever the teaching environment is. Uh, online (laughs) Um, but actually it's a great thing to have opportunities um, for deliberate practice built into the the structure of CPD. And then last but by no means least uh, you need to support participants to measure their progress and reflect on their learning and plan the next steps. So most effective CPD is not a transmission model but rather it's an iterative process of feedback and improvement where participants take ownership of their own development aims and and their own achievement.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, thank you. A lot of those things really echo what we're trying to achieve at the assessment network, particularly the collaborative networks and professional standards that you mentioned. So I just wanted to ask, in an education setting in particular, how do you engage people to make time for CPD.
2: Yeah it's a huge is- issue isn't it and in fact there's an even bigger practical issue in further education in England which is not just um, making the time for the for the practitioner but also um, paying to cover their classes. Uh, it, it is, we, we've done some research into barriers to CPD and there are a number of barriers as you might expect so not being able to find the thing that's relevant to my needs, um, not being able to make the time, um, not being able to afford it. But the single most common one is not being released um, because institutions are typically working on very, very, very tight margins. And the cost of uh, a cover teacher or cost of of remission in any sense is prohibitive. And that's why often we build in to our CPD programmes funding specifically to cover uh, th- that, um, that teaching that is missed while the, while the teacher engages because teachers should not be obliged to engage in their own time, uh, absolutely not. It's a large part about culture. So in some in- institutions um, finding the time for professional development <clears throat> is absolutely a non-issue because it's seen as a, a crucial. Uh, investment, a, a, a sharpening of the saw, if you like, that makes the rest of the time uh, better spent. Uh, but in others, it's seen as a nice to have um, that that can only be done in, in times of plenty, so to speak. So it is it's a cultural issue. And that culture typically flows um, from the top of an organisation, of course. So I would say that's, that's the single most effective thing you can do to help uh, teachers find the time uh, to engage in professional development.
1: And do you think it's important to professionalise assessment, um, for example, through accredited training programmes or through professional networks?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, I I suppose uh, if it was a yes, no answer, (laughs) the answer would be yes. to try and kind of expand on that a bit um, sometimes we talk about teaching and learning sometimes we talk about teaching learning and assessment and I think that's really interesting that as a sector we flip between these two almost without too much thought or comment uh, why does assessment sometimes get joint billing with teaching and learning and why is it sometimes not uh, we don't do a lot of professional development in the field of assessment, um, and that is something that we would uh, we would like to do, and something we'd like to do more of. And and really, there are two main reasons why we don't. One is because there isn't great demand for it from uh, the Department for Education, who is our primary funder, and the other is because there's not demand, great demand for it from the sector. So that's that's a very interesting state of affairs, I think. Um, should there be uh, more demand for a professional development and possibly uh, accreditation? I would say yes, because typically I think skills, knowledge, skills and practice in assessment do lag a bit behind uh, other aspects of professional practice. Uh, I think we have still quite a lot of um, misunderstanding of assessment practices quite often. I think it's quite hard to find good uh, training and development in the field of assessment. And I think it's seen as quite a specialist topic quite often. So it's simultaneously something that all teachers do all the time, but something that very few people are very specialist in. So I think um, a bit more mainstreaming of uh, assessment theory and practice into and the core professional standards uh, would be a very good thing. But the last thing I'd say about that is that also points to a bigger issue in our sector, which is the lack of uh, a core agreed uh, set of professional qualifications. So we have professional standards, um, but they're completely non-mandatory. We have professional statuses. QTLS being the, the basic post-qualifying status, and then advanced teacher status being the advanced status that brings chartered teacher status. But these are still not um, the common currency that are, that are required by all uh, employing institutions. And I think that weakness of a common core of uh, agreed and required professional standards it is something that holds our sector back in, in its effectiveness.
1: That was a really insightful answer, thank you, and definitely what we like to hear as we really advocate for the need for improved assessment literacy. So next, I wanted to ask you about how your organization has had to adapt over the past year due to the current circumstances and how that's affected what you do.
2: Yeah, of course, I mean it's been a massive challenge for everyone, hasn't it and and uh, y- you know we 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 haven't um you know we've never stopped telling ourselves how fortunate we are um to be working for you know a professional development body um, that is able to shift its work online that is able to keep doing what it does without having to worry uh about the the public health um Uh, implications of what we do so this year has been absolutely for us um, about getting behind the professionals in the sector who are facing the front line and helping them adapt Um, the challenges on us as an organization have been nothing compared to the challenges on um, colleges independent training providers adult education institutions who've had to do completely new things in very difficult circumstances, very quickly. Uh, And I've done it um, brilliantly and in a sustained way over time in an environment of huge uncertainty and threat. And and I just think it's been absolutely inspirational um, what teachers and leaders in the sector have done. So our job has been easy. I mean, all we've had to do is redesign our professional development so that it's not face to face and instead it's online now. Of course, that takes a lot of work and it takes uh, a lot of different expertise um, because, you know, anybody can put paper behind glass. Anybody can you know turn a, a presentation into a webinar. But to have really high quality uh, online interaction is a very skilled design process. And one of the things that we've done this year is um, we found a new partner to help um, accelerate our ability to do that work. So we've we've partnered with FutureLearn uh, this year, uh, which has really taken us faster than we would have done um, down the road of being able to deliver um, really top quality uh, online and professional development. But we have many other delivery partners too, um, some of whom were already doing this, already expert in it, some of whom had to respond quickly and adapt, uh, and I have to say, um, have done so brilliantly. So, um, we moved almost all of our work online. The only exception was our top leadership program um, for serving CEOs, our further um, further education strategic leadership program that we deliver in partnership with Oxford University and Side Business School. And we held out for a while because there was such a strong message from leaders in the sector that they that they hugely valued the face-to-face residential um, character of that development programme. So we held on for a while, we did some postponement, uh, we, we, we held on for, for better days, but after, as the pandemic um, you know, it evolved, it became clear that uh, we would be waiting a long, long time if we waited until we could do that face-to-face again. So instead, we uh, we adapted and we, we we developed it for as an online experience, not knowing, in all honesty, whether it would work. Uh, so we went into it with some trepidation. In fact, it worked extremely well. And the feedback from the sector was, um, that was absolutely what we needed, um, absolutely excellent. The only way it could have been even better <laughs> is if it had been face to face. So we all look forward to the time when we can do this. Uh, in the same space again but in the meantime um, you know this is much better than not doing it at all so that's been a big learning process for us and our partners uh, and we've learnt a huge amount along the way and some of our work will definitely not go back uh, to being face-to-face and some of it will
1: and have you seen an uptake in your offering and do you think that's due to the constantly changing circumstances
2: Yes, we have. We have indeed. Um, again, it's been a, a complex picture. Um, the headline is we have seen an increase in uptake through this uh, through this pandemic period, but it's not been um, uniform. So I've just mentioned their top leadership and uh, you know how the how their response to that was. Some areas have absolutely exploded in their uptake, uh, and of course, as you'd expect. And um, the, the primary one there is use of technology for teaching. So our our enhanced digital platform, and um, which creates a, a framework and then a set of um, professional development um, experiences to help teachers to teach online, um, that was um, doing well before the pandemic, but its use has absolutely exploded through this period. And the department has responded Quite quickly, in terms of um, upping its level of investment in that area, we've we've created lots of new modules, uh, we've increased the um, the sort of user collaboration aspects, and that's been uh, a fantastic success story um, for us. And other areas of um, engagement, we've also seen it increase. Surprisingly, perhaps, um, we've also seen an increase in our um, professional membership body. So we, when the pandemic started, we thought, okay, this is going to be a really tough year. Everybody's going to have to focus on new things, and focus on core business, and um, we we wouldn't expect to grow our professional membership body in terms of numbers this year. I mean, typically we look at a sort of nine, 10% year on year growth, um, which, which is very, very strong. Uh, we, we factored in a flat. We thought we would do well if we were, we stayed flat through the pandemic. In fact, we've had a 4% growth in our membership through this period. And I think that's just a, a testament to the importance of, of community and collaboration through this period. The sense of being part of something bigger and having support networks uh, and having uh, voices that are on your side and, and um, um, groups that you can tap into is very, very strong. So that's grown as well. Uh, we've also got the largest number of uh, applicants, both for QTLS and for ATS. So um, actually very, very strong, uh, improved engagement. I'd say the one area that bucks that trend is sometimes where we have we're trying to do new things with new partners in the sector where we need a lot of um, bandwidth at the top of the organization needs a lot of headspace. And very understandably, sometimes um, organizations, colleges and others have had to say, look, we were really excited to be part of this partnership. And, and to be one of your delivery partners, we have to put this on a slightly slower timescale because we're grappling with the pandemic and, and what it means for us. So um, not a uniform picture, but overall a very, very positive one.
1: And I wonder if you could share any recent successes, um, for example, support offered that has led to clear learner benefits or innovations due to the pandemic?
2: Yes, yeah, it's, an, it's an interesting question. So, of course, it depends how you measure uh, the the benefit of what you're doing. And, and there are multiple layers of benefit for us. So uh, we're a charitable organisation. We're a, we're a not for profit company, but um, we're, we're established as a charity. And the beneficiaries of our charity are not teachers. And the beneficiaries of our charity are learners. So we're really clear that our purpose is to improve outcomes for learners age 14 and over. And our mechanism for doing that is um, to support teachers practice and help them improve their practice. So <clears throat> for, you have to think about which level of benefit you're looking at. Um, if we take uh, teachers first as you know the most immediate beneficiaries of what we do, if you come on a, an ETF professional development programme, Um, how will that affect your practice? How will that affect your career development as well? And because, you know, that's a really important motivation. Well, uh, we evaluate most of our programs and I'll take one example because it's quite a recent um, program we run for um, those uh, who are aspiring to become principals or CEOs in the sector. Uh, We've had a very successful um, conversion rate Uh, of people who've been on that program and have then subsequently gone on to secure principalships in the sector and i think um, that's the really important measure because you know it's a very tough time to become a principal or a ceo in fe in england and uh, and yet it's so vital for for learners um, that we have good people well-equipped people um, good leaders stepping up to that. So the fact that we've had um, s- such a strong success rate, dozens uh, of people going through that becoming um, principals and CEOs in quite a short time is, is, is a real sign um, that we're doing the right thing there. But if you want to take the, the more fundamental um, answer about learners, well, you need to look over time because, you know, there's not a, an easy correlation between professional development, then changes in practice, then changes in learner outcomes, which are then measurable through some sort of metric like, um, you know, qualification outcomes or or Austin grades or whatever. So it's only our longer term programs that you can do that for. Um, but the thing we've been doing for longest is um, English and maths. And uh, our evaluation does indeed show that organisations that have engaged with us over a number of years in Maths and English GCSE, Reset, uh, CPD do indeed have um, increases in, in uh, outcomes. Now, it's very difficult to answer the question, yes, but what would have happened if they hadn't? <laughs> because we're not doing randomised control trials here. So, you know, we, we don't Take two colleges that look alike and engage with one and don't engage with the other, so that that that's always quite a a difficult question, and um, but we have seen positive results come through that, and um, which we're very pleased with, and we're building on that now with um, more recently with our centres for excellence uh, in maths um, uh, program, which is doing specifically looking at um, uh, improving maths outcomes, and again some really positive um, signs there. Although I have to say measurement has been very, very difficult because of the uh, the fact that um, examinations, uh, GCSE examinations didn't go ahead as normal last year.
1: And have you seen um, any innovations happening in the FE sector? Um, and I wonder if you could tell me how you think CPD is important to support those innovations.
2: Yeah, it's, it's another interesting question. So... Um, Innovation is not always a hurrah word for me, <laughs> um, because although you know innovation is generally considered to be a good thing, another way of de- one way of defining innovation is um, something that hasn't been proven to work. <laughs> so um, why would you want to do that then? <laughs> um, that's not how we look at innovation. I mean, we we wouldn't focus on the the sort of novelty aspect of innovation. We would say innovation is about um doing something differently uh in the in a context um, which works so it might be working already somewhere else but you import it into a new context and if it's new in that context if it's innovative in that context um but perhaps been proven already um, elsewhere then it has a good chance of being successful in that new context so i would say that by that definition of innovation, um, FE is fantastic at innovating. Um, it, it, it does it all the time, all over the place. And I would say that this year, you know, um, that old phrase necessity is the mother of invention. Um, you know, there's had to be an awful lot of innovation this year uh, in, in use of uh, online learning and, and hybrid learning. Um, I think it's been uh, really interesting to see how colleges and other providers have gone about rethinking their curriculum and asking themselves questions. If we have very restricted face to face time, which has been the case for a lot of the last year, how do we prioritize the use of that time? Now, some of those decisions make themselves so we can say, well, um, it's a lot easier to teach uh, A-level sociology uh, online than it is to teach level one bricklaying, right? That, that, that answers itself. Then there's another set of considerations which are not as obvious, but the evidence started to show them pretty quickly. So that's about what types of learners on what types of programmes uh, are more likely to be able to uh, make good use of remote education as opposed to face to face education. So that then has driven a lot of the um, uh, the curriculum redesign. But then the really exciting stuff, from an innovation perspective, is thinking about um, okay, if I only have um, limited uh, face-to-face time, how do I want to reshape my curriculum such that I maximise that time? And it's an idea that's been around for a while in in the, the form of the flip, flipped classroom. But but it's really mainstreamed that concept and made it very, very uh, core. The idea that uh, you want your learners to come to the classroom or, or to the workplace, uh, having done everything they can do remotely so that they can then use that time to get the, the most benefit of the skills and, and knowledge of the teacher. So it's then about things like um, identifying misconceptions from the remote education or doing some deliberate practice or really digging into the feedback or doing some um, collaborative work um, with other students and so on. So that type of really sort of close detail uh, curriculum innovation, I think, is the most exciting thing that's happened in the sector over the last year.
1: An F.E. white paper skills for jobs came out recently highlighting the need for quality educators what are the main things you think we need to ensure we do have quality educators
2: i i, I was delighted with with the fe white paper um even though a lot of commentary was was perhaps less so uh, and the reason i was delighted was because um there was a whole chapter dedicated to outstanding teaching and and you know i thought i actually thought everything in the white paper was good uh, uh, I thought it was a, a really good piece of work and saying that as someone who used to work in the Department for Education and, and was involved in writing quite a few white papers, um, I admired this one. I, you know, it's very self-contained, it's, it hangs together very well, it's very coherent, it's very well written. Um, it was done in difficult circumstances, not just because of Covid but the lack of a spending review and so on. So I think it's a, it's a really good piece of work but the best thing about it is the chapter five, all about outstanding teaching and that's so important because it's, it it's it shows the government is really putting front and center the role of uh, the workforce the role of the of the educators themselves and then within that the way they're conceptualizing it is even better so often when governments of any color talk about um teaching they talk about things like inspection uh or they might talk about um, uh, accountability and that that sort of thing. But actually, or or they might talk about pay, which didn't happen in this case, and that that is missing. But what the white paper does is it talks about the things that really matter, talks about recruitment, talks about uh, initial training, talks about development uh, and retention to an extent. And it talks about um, networks and, and professional exchange. So these are really, really strong themes and they play through in some very specific programmes in the white paper as well. So if you look at uh, recruitment into the sector, um, there's clear initiatives there on the Taking Teaching Further programme, which the ETF uh, has been delivering and will continue to deliver. That's about bringing experienced people from industry into the FE sector. Uh, It talks about the Talent to Teach programme, which we've also been running, which is about giving uh, a taste of the FE sector to graduates uh, and postgraduates who might not have considered teaching in FE and introducing them to the sector and giving them some, uh, some work experience and enticing them in that way. So, attracting new talent, fantastic. Uh, it talks about a recruitment programme and uh, advice service, um, which we also run, which is great. But then it goes on and and thinks about what's not just about recruitment, because actually often retention is as big a problem. So you can get a revolving door. What happens once you've recruited people in? Well, uh, then you need to think about things like workforce industry exchange. So making sure that there's a, a really porous boundary between the F.E. teaching profession and uh, the the sectors of the economy that they are preparing learners to go into. So that type of professional refresh and industry exchange is really uh, vital, so I was delighted to see that uh, as well. Apprenticeships, you know apprenticeships has been frankly forgotten uh, for quite a few years from a professional development perspective, even though it's been a very important plank of government policy. So Again, to see a new uh, apprenticeships workforce development program, uh, which again, the ETF has designed and delivered, to see that announced in the white paper, an absolutely fantastic um, shift in in tone and emphasis. And I hope that that will just grow and continue. Uh, T-level professional development, again, a commitment to that. Um, Training for governors and and senior leadership, commitment to that. So there's so much that the sector can be excited about in, in this FE white paper. Uh, and and I'm I'm very very positive about that as well as um last thing to say on this initial teacher training so um not a signal of return to um a regulated uh, profession which you know some people would like to see um, but rather doing everything government can short of regulation because it recognizes it has a very important responsibility to ensure that the quality of initial teacher education in FE is of the highest quality. Um, Because we don't need teachers in FE to be as good as teachers in schools, we need teachers in FE to be better than teachers in schools because they have to do everything that school teachers do and they have to do a lot more besides And because they are dual professionals uh, who who work with industry uh, and or with adults as well as working with their subject. Um, and and that's fantastic.
1: That's brilliant thank you Um, and David thank you so much for speaking to me Um, that was all very interesting and insightful so thank you.
2: You're very welcome.
0: Thank you for listening to the Cambridge Assessment Podcast. You can find more of our podcasts on our website just search Podcast Gallery or you can find us on Apple Podcasts or YouTube.